Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things. Today, we kick off our coverage of Black Widow, who's finally getting her own movie after a very long delay, of, well, long if you count COVID, even longer if you count how long it's been since she first appeared in the MCU. Now, next week, Ryan and Hannah and me will begin discussing her stories in the comics, uh, but this week, you're just getting a short episode about her backstory, how she became who she is today. It's really one of the more interesting and sort of complicating rebrands we've covered here on the Cape Town Podcast, and I'll go over that with you today. And then, once again, Ryan and Hannah will be back next week for a longer conversation around her character and her movies, her other appearances, and what we think about her. So few characters have gone through as much evolution as the Black Widow. Now, comic book fans, as I'm sure you know, are notorious for disliking change, and they tend to measure every iteration of a character by how closely it hues to what's already been established. But for some reason, Natasha Romanova has really dodged all of this by living a lot of very distinct lives in the comics. And uh, uh, she, she dodges things. That's what she does. She's a spy. Uh, but she wasn't always the sort of spy as we see her today. Uh, not at the beginning at first. So in the very early days of comics in the 60s, it became pretty common for superheroes to get involved in whatever geopolitical conflict was taking place at the time. Comic book publishers apparently were telling writers that it just wasn't realistic for Superman and Wonder Woman and the rest to be snatching bank robbers at home when Hitler and the Nazis were on the move. A very early issue of Superman in the 40s has him zipping around the world and he collects Hitler and Stalin and he flies them off to Geneva to face The Hague. And that's an early example of comic books trying to be maybe a little too serious for their own good. Uh, certainly not the last example of that. But it also veered into uh, military propaganda, right? With superheroes kind of acting as little more than superpowered extensions of American interests. And that was true in the early days of Marvel as well. The Soviet Union was a source for a lot of characters in the 60s, which is the Silver Age and sort of the dawn of Marvel Comics. The US and the Soviet Union were locked in the Cold War and superhero comics really felt obligated to take on the Russians and they did. This was particularly true of Iron Man, which was already even in the early days trying to position itself as a more sophisticated superhero comic series. Uh, science was really big in the 60s, obviously, and the promise of its ability to do anything was on American minds. And the people who knew how to do that well, how to do science well, were seen as pioneers of this new era of humanity. And that's why Stan Lee and Jack Kirby could make these James Bond type leading men out of scientists like Reed Richards and Peter Parker and Tony Stark. Now, early James Bond really was very clearly a model for a lot of early Iron Man comics. Tony Stark runs into a lot of slick, sort of extravagant mob bosses and enterprising terrorists, and yes, a lot of Soviet enemies too. Black Widow actually made her debut as this Russian femme fatale. She's not an acrobat. She's not much of a fighter at all. She's wearing this sleek evening dress, and she uh, has this netted mask on and, and she's just trying to seduce everybody with this long cigarette and you can really hear them uh, hear the Russian accent in her dialogue
dialogue. And she, in the very first issue of her appearance, she double crosses Tony to help her evil partner in crime, the Crimson Dynamo. Um, she spends the next few issues. She pops up quite a bit as a bad guy for Iron Man. She is this, uh, she, she woos men and then she turns on them. And she even recruits this brand new American villain to take on Iron Man. She finds and be sort of bewitches this archer named Hawkeye. And he makes his first appearance in the comics as a brainwashed henchman, basically, to the Black Widow. But then the Black Widow ends up falling for Hawkeye and she starts distancing herself from the Soviet Union so that she can be with him because these comics never missed a chance to demonstrate just how badly Russians would want to defect to America if they could just open their eyes for a few seconds. And this falling in love with Hawkeye thing sort of sets the tone for her for the next oh, 10, 15 years or so. Um, she turns up in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man in 1970. Uh, at this point, she is living this very luxurious life in a penthouse suite. She has a driver and a confidant, this guy named Ivan Patrovich. And uh, she has designed the new costume for herself, the skin-tight black suit that she's had pretty much ever since. And she's got now these utility bracelets, too, that she can use to swing around town. And she kind of acts as a female Spider-Man character for a few issues. Black Widow, Spider-Man, it kind of made sense at the time. And then she even briefly gets her own little comic strip where she's a, a sort of a freelance crime fighter. And this might be one of the first, maybe the very first example of a villain turning into a superhero in Marvel Comics. It's certainly the biggest rebrand so far, where a woman goes from a shifty Soviet villain to an American-based acrobatic spy in just a couple of years. And Marvel is really just getting started here. Her comic strip didn't work out, but she pops up almost immediately in the pages of Daredevil, where she becomes Matt Murdock's romantic and crime-fighting partner. Uh, this guy, Jerry Conway, was writing Daredevil at the time, and he just says that he was a fan of the character. He asked Marvel if he could introduce her as a love interest for Daredevil, and apparently she'd forgotten all about Hawkeye, and she joined right up. And this began a really long streak for her as Daredevil's partner, and it's interesting how much it's not really talked about or considered part of her characterization today. Uh, but at this time, she was seen as very much Russian. She's very much the sidekick. She gets captured a lot. She gets rescued a lot. Uh, her driver, Ivan, is still around, but he's revealed to be the man who sort of raised her. She was an orphan, and he trained her how to fight. She has this very adult relationship, unlike Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy. Uh, Matt Murdock and Natasha Romanoff are kind of implied to be living together. And uh, yes, you can find examples of her being written in some kind of backwards, regressive ways. But it's notable at the end of her time in Daredevil, which lasted about five years, uh, she really it came around and ended because Natasha realized Daredevil was just holding her back and she'd never reach her full potential as somebody's sidekick. So she leaves him and that had proved to be very true. She never did achieve her full potential as a sidekick in Daredevil. After this, Natasha pops up again in a very brief series called The Champions, which isn't super notable. It's, it's not very well remembered at all, but it is notable, I think, because she becomes the leader of this West Coast superhero team, sort of a California analog to the Avengers. Uh, it's also got Iceman and Angel in it, and Hercules and Ghost Rider are on the team as well. And this is one of the first times in Marvel Comics that a woman is given a leadership job on a superhero team. It's not 
not a bad comic. It's been pretty much forgotten now. But I, I think the if there is another if there's another comic book series before this in which a woman is given the leadership job on a team, I could not find it. The next time she pops up in this book called Marvel Fanfare, uh, it just features a different hero every couple of issues. Now, this series was written by George Perez and Ralph Macchio, and it's really the first time that you start seeing her as more of a spy than a superhero. She's sneaking in the shadows and infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D., and she's a tech whiz and a martial artist, and it's an important step towards her being the like super spy, world-class spy we think of her today, and it also introduces the idea of her her and Nick Fury being on trusted terms, which is obviously uh, very important to her identity in the MCU. Now, it's not till 2000 that she gets her own actual series, and this introduces a very important part of her origin, the Red Room. The Red Room is this institution that trains girls into super spies for Russia, and it's where Natasha was raised. It fronts as a ballet studio, but it's actually this sort of Kingsman-type organization dedicated to keeping Russia safe. And that means there are a lot of other women in Russia with Natasha's training. Women, for example, like Yelena Belova, the White Widow, and the only other spy who ever got Natasha's marks in the Red Room. And this is about the time that she starts to become more associated with the Avengers as well. She briefly leads the team in the 90s. And it's also the point that her shady history stops being part of the story altogether. Uh, nobody treats her with suspicion anymore. Everybody trusts her. She sheds the femme fatale villain on a mission of redemption vibe altogether. And she starts going on cosmic Avengers with, uh, or, or cosmic adventures rather, with Earth's mightiest heroes. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the MCU journey has sort of mirrored this arc. In Iron Man 2, Scarlett Johansson makes her debut as the Black Widow. Uh, Emily Blunt had been given this role, but had to back out over other film commitments. So it went to Scarlet. And at first, you know, if you can think back to Iron Man 2, she's not much more than a sexy spy at first, kind of like she was in her own first Iron Man appearance. Then she does briefly become a full-fledged Avenger, but then she goes back to being the sidekick in The Winter Soldier, just like she was for Daredevil. And after that, she does become uh, an established Avenger and uh, also, of course, has her sort of controversial end in Avengers Endgame. And we'll be talking more about that in the next episode with Ryan and Hannah. And this all happens before we finally get to see her in her own starring role, her own movie, which does return her to her Russian roots. So Black Widow debuted at a time when women weren't really given much characterization in comics. At the time, most superhero teams only had one girl, and her defining trait was being the girl. Cyclops was shy, Beast was smart, Iceman was young, Angel was rich, and Jean Grey was the girl. Now, Black Widow was able to dodge, there's that word again, dodge this, by having a redemption arc and the, the Russian background, which might be part of the reason that she's lasted so long in Marvel Comics, even though she hasn't really been a major player until recently. Tying her origins to the Soviet Union would seem to put her in danger of seeming a little old-fashioned, but Natasha's gotten good to reinvention over the years. She's lived a lot of lives. That's what spies do. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Cape Town Podcast, everyone. If you like what you heard, and then I hope you'll go give us a good review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, also, if you subscribe to us, you can follow us on Twitter at Cape Town Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at Cape Town Podcast. We are here every week covering the uh, covering the superhero podcast, about superhero things. I'm very much looking forward to talking to Ryan Hannah more about Black Widow next week. No need for thanks, citizen. We'll see you next time. <laughs>